was lucky. I think I just got that. That was lucky. So, Can, do you want to tell everybody where we are? I'm slightly worried about it because I'm going to say Summerleaton and oh. you're going to say. Oh, mate. You're going to say it's. Sum, Summerleaton. Summerleaton. Okay. Summerleaton. S O M E R L E Y T O N. Yeah. It was on a grey, overcast day in August '92 that I travelled down to the coast in one of the old diesel trains, grimed with oil and soot up to the windows, which ran from Norwich to Lowestoft at that time. It's the Rings of Saturn. The Rings of Saturn by, by W. G. Sebald. 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 And at the next station, the halt for Summerleyton Hall. I got out. There was no station at the stop; only an open shelter. That isn't true. There is a station. This we're in the open shelter. Yeah, but there is a st- there's a station building. It's just not being used as a station building anymore. Mm-hmm. I walked down the deserted platform to my left, the seemingly endless expanses of the marshes, and to my right, beyond a low brick wall, the shrubs and trees of the park. So if he gets off the train on this platform, the Which marshes is- are to your right, and you walk towards the hall... Which so is going towards Summerleyton Hall. He's got, he's got his left and right mixed up. So we need to talk about W.G. Sebald, don't we? <laughs> Max. Max Sebald. Why is he called Max when he's called W.G.? Even his name is made up. So he starts here, this whole journey. The whole journey, the Rings of Saturn. So Max Sebald, he was, he was a, a, a lecturer at University of East Anglia. Professor. Professor, originally from Bavaria. Yep. Uh, moved to England in the 70s. Yeah. To Manchester. Yeah. Where uh, you're from. Where, well... I say that, but everybody knows it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to become a theme. A theme about lying. Maybe this is a podcast about... Well, let's say it's a podcast about the slipperiness of truth. Now, well, hold on a minute. We're called Curiously Specific, yeah. right? Now, the, if I had a pound for every time when I say to them, oh, yeah, I do work with my mate Lloyd on a podcast about mapping out works of fiction and books in the landscape. They go, oh, you must do Rings of Saturn. And on the way here and planning this, we have talked a little bit about what the appropriate tone to adopt towards the book would be. Yes. And we could do the pretty much the standard tone, which is profoundly reverential, almost yeah. almost holy. Yeah. Um, and it's all we could say, no, you got that wrong. I do love this book. It's really fantastic. But I don't think it's about location. I think it's about what's going on inside a writer's head it's a man it's a man walking people obsess about the places in the book yeah here in suffolk where yeah. we are they obsess about this but and they 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 go to them and they visit them and they take pictures of them and they go here's the station platform and actually the places in the if you counted up the number of pages where he's talking about the places it's a fraction of the book ah most of the book is about what the places remind him of yes and it's about his so he talks about Thomas Brown, he talks about Chateaubriand, he talks about Edward Fitzgerald, he Swinburne. talks about Swinburne, writers about mainly. Herring, he talks about herring, and he talks about silkworms. Silkworms a lot. A lot. So we're out we, here. Why are we, we bothering? <laughs> we're out in summer Leighton. And by the way, you said it was August. It's January, it's really cold. He walks from the station. All the way there, which is a long way. It is a long way, as we discovered. Do you want to know just a little bit about Summer Leighton Hall? Yeah. He talks a lot about the maze there. I've been in that maze with my granddad many, many times. Many times. He was a tall man, six foot seven, and he had a walking stick so that he could put the, raise the walking stick above the hedge. We could see him, see it. I remember, have vivid memories of um, him sort of guiding our way through the maze. 
rather happy memories actually. Yeah. Of course, it's quite obvious that we are all going to, to die, and this is the, the, the sad finale of everything. Um, but nevertheless, there is something in us that doesn't believe it. So we've come up from Summer Leighton's halt, the station. If one nevertheless arrives at the railway halt, as I did, and has no desire to walk away round to the front, brackets, and pay the ticket fee, <laughs> one has to climb the wall like some interloper and struggle through the thicket before reaching the park. So we think he came up from the station, Yeah. and then there's a footpath across the fields here that we're standing on, across the road, and we are now standing at the wall of Summer Leighton Hall... It's about uh, four and a half feet. Yeah. Something like that. You could get over that, couldn't you, mate? I could get over that, and I've got short Welsh legs. Yeah. So I reckon this is where Sabelt illegally climbed into... He didn't pay the admission <laughs> fee. Pay the admission no one's fee. mentioned that in, in any of the Seabold no. studies. No one's mentioned the fact... <laughs> he, he's basically writing this book in... He, it's published in 95 in, in English or in German? 95. In, 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 in German, it, I think. Yeah. So, and, and it does say at the end of the book that he is writing his notes in 95 about the walk that he took in 92. So that's at, three years later. And at the start of the book he says, In August 1992, when the dog days were drawing to an end, I set off to walk the county of Suffolk. Right. In the hope of dispelling the emptiness that takes hold of me whenever I've completed a long stint of work. Now we think the long stint of work was the emigrants. Yes, the book before, yes, which he, which he mentions, 92. He mentions yeah. being in Holland. Yeah, very depressing book, actually. Depressing Not book. surprising that he um, felt that he needed to uh, sort of get it well. Year, and a year after yeah. he did his walking tour, so 93, he ends up in hospital. So it's all the timeline. So the the war time, didn't work, but work for him. The timeline is quite confusing. Yes, yeah, so what I'm saying is that I think that he didn't do the continuous walk he describes I bet you what happened was that he went to Lowestoft stayed long, did a little bit of research around Lowestoft yeah. came out here for the day yeah. right, and then went back home to Wyndham where he lived yeah. and then another day he went to uh, down to wherever else all the keen Sibaldians right, when they talk about the fact it's a great book because Sibaldians you can take it Sibaldians or Sibaldists well, I would say Sibaldians. <laughs> Sibaldians. Sibaldians. <laughs> they, they would... They, them, them, those people. Those people who are taking I'm, it all very, very seriously. Yeah, well, I'd be one of them, yeah. up until now, yeah. would say, oh, of course, what's great about this, but you can take it out into the location describes and have a Sibaldian moment or whatever. But you obviously haven't taken it out there because literally on page one... <laughs> not the page left one, the right of the wrong way around. It's not right. No. For half a century, Blunderston Prison's been a familiar landmark to those living near Lowestoft. But earlier this month, the government announced it would be one of four prisons closing, which means transferring more than 500 prisoners currently housed in Suffolk and leaving question marks over the future of the 200 or so staff who work here. I walked for a good hour along the country road from Summerleyton to Lowestoft, passing Blunston Prison which rises out of the flatland like a fortified town and keeps within its walls 1,200 inmates at any one time. So basically this, this prison was closed 
some time ago. When you say this prison, you mean this pile of rubble, and there's sort of the remnants of some kind of building. It doesn't look very prisony, and it doesn't look like it would loom out of the landscape to me. Well, they've knocked down the main building, I Have think. Have they? Because their fence is still up, and notice the fence is... This is outside That's the, the fence. outside the fence, right. So okay. this is, I think this is the reception area. So I found a very good piece by Lawrence Corley on the BBC website. The now-abandoned Blunston prison once held some of the UK's most infamous prisoners. Among them were East End gangster Reggie Cray, shoe bomber Richard Reed, oh, wow. and lotto lout Michael Carroll. BBC News was granted a final look around before it was pulled down. What date is this that it was... So this around? piece is written in 2016. Right. Even by his own standards, is the, the sort of rapidity of decay of the landscape he's actually walking through yeah. is quite striking, is that enormous amounts of what he's talking about in 92 here in 2018 is gone. Therefore, it's hard to verify whether it was ever there at all. Yeah. But, but the fact that he walked past us and Reggie Cray's inside... Was he, well, he might not have been then. No, he was. He, he came got... here straight from... He was imprisoned in oh. 1969 he after receiving here. a life sentence for double murder at the Old Bailey. Yeah. And he was here he the whole time. He came straight from the induction unit, says Mr Horton, across to here, cell 116, and this was his welcome to Blunston. But after Blunston, Cray was incarcerated at Maidstone Prison yeah. in 1994, so he was here. Ah. In fact, he moved just afterwards. He moved just afterwards. Yeah, he disappeared from the landscape as well. WGC belt could have waved to Reggie Cray as he was walking through. He could have done a bit more with that in the book, couldn't he? He could have, he could have, could have worked in a more doom and gloom if he'd really thought about it. Reggie Cray is very much a, a, a myth of popular culture, right? Sibelt's got zero interest in popular culture. I think there's probably quite a high chance he'd never even heard of Reggie Cray. That's possible. Because he lives true. entirely in until somebody, a European yeah. literary kind of world that's it if Walter Benjamin had written about him <laughs> if Walter Benjamin had been imprisoned here you know, where Walter Benjamin wrote his famous essay on yeah, butterflies yeah, yeah, and yeah. Budlier yeah the then... decline of time <laughs> it's true Reg- Reggie Cray who's Reggie Cray <laughs> I think it's absolutely ridiculous to be scared of dying because there's nothing we can do about it <laughs> that's the easiest reason it for it I've ever heard it's the one it's the one given Yes. And I think if you can let go of that fear and just sort of, hey, we're going to die, it's much easier to live the, the rest of one's life more fully. Now, I want to talk to you about thanatorism. What the hell is that? Well, I've discovered thanatorism in, a, in a, an essay called Sabalt's Ghosts from the University of Edinburgh by Simon Cook. It was defined like by Anthony Seaton in 1996, and it's got five degrees. Five degrees of thanatorism, four of which are present in this book. The Rings of Star. So the five degrees are the narrator visits sites where actual deaths have occurred. Okay. Yeah. Numerous graves and monuments. Yes. Second part. Battle reenactments and representations of violent death. Waterloo, he Waterloo. went to. And a museum in the book described as a chamber of horrors. Okay. So those are four of the five dimensions. The fifth one is to travel to watch death. Yeah. So he yeah, well, that the would be a different book. So, so dark tourism is, is, is a thing. It's an academic thing. Is that what we've been doing? Thanat- we've been doing thanatourism. You're a, a thanatourist. <laughs> but the other thing that he, that's really interesting about this is the notion that the narrator in the book is himself a ghost. 
Oh yeah, right. yeah you said yeah. Um, yeah, although I went one further though and said, uh, I think he's deaf. That wherever he goes, if we fo- where we follow now, everything he describes quite often is dead. Throughout the book, there are hints that we are reading the account of a kind of ghost. When the traveller visits the poet and translator Michael Hamburger, he records that the quite outlandish thought crossed my mind that these things, the kindling, the jiffy bags, the fruit preserves, the seashells and the sounds of the sea within them, had outlasted me, and that Michael was taking me round a house which I myself had lived in a long time ago. I don't know. I, some vision came and said that I was going to get pardoned, and they shot me. You were my one great love. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm dead. What's it like? Uh, what's it like? Uh, you know the chicken at Tresky's restaurant? Yeah. It's worse. Nearly a quarter of the population is now practically illiterate, and there is no sign of an end to the encroaching misery. Although I knew all of this, I was unprepared for the feeling of wretchedness that instantly seized hold of me in Lowestoft. <laughs> well, we are in Lowestoft, which is why you're... He's a gloomy bugger, Why you're he? speaking quite quietly, because we don't want the people in Lowestoft to hear that they are 25% functionally illiterate. Where's, where's your evidence of that, Run-down run houses with mean little front gardens... So he comes to Lowestoft and he stays at a hotel called the Albion. Yes. As I climbed the steps coated with shiny blue paint up to the entrance to recognise the Albion as the hotel on the promenade of a superior description recommended in my guidebook. So we are sitting in the Victoria Hotel. Yes. On the promenade in Lowestoft. South B. We think he might have got his everything in reverse because he talks about coming from... Well, after he's, after he's stayed at the Albion Hotel, he then says, The following morning, when I left the Albion Hotel with my rucksack over my shoulder, Lowestoft had reawoken to life, and he says, Passing the harbour, where dozens of decommissioned and unemployed trawlers rode at their moorings, I headed south through streets that were now congested with traffic and filled with blue petrol fumes. Once, right by Lowestoft Central Station, a black hearse decked out with reeds slid past me. If he's come out of the hotel and headed south and gone past the railway station, North he would have been staying in North Lowestoft. But there's no promenade there's there. No promenade and there's no big hotel. No. So he stayed in South Lowestoft. Yeah, yeah. So he's got it wrong way round again. And we met a nice couple who, as far as they know, had there'd never been a hotel called the Albion in Lowestoft. But he's, he's definitely right by the beach. We are sitting in a bay window. It says here, I rose and crossed to the semicircular bay window. Outside was the beach. Yeah, so where we are. Yeah, there's no, you couldn't do that in the north. Oh, and we found a Weatherspoons called the Joseph Conrad. There's a long section in the book about Joseph Conrad. There's a long section about Joseph Conrad, who came to England via Lowestoft. That was where he first landed and stayed. His first experience of Britishness is in Lowestoft. Um, I mean, I suppose we ought to say that Lowestoft, you know, it's true to say that it's a place of faded grandeur. So, 92, I think it is relevant to say that he's right at the arse end of Thatcherism, isn't he? He's got that John Major wins the election in 92. Lowestoft would have been, was, you know, pretty devastated by Pretty devastated. Welcome to the Book Club. Look, I'm awfully sorry. I am the Grim Reaper. Who? The Grim Reaper. Yes, I see. 
I am dead. Yes, well, the thing is, we've got some people from America for dinner tonight. Who is it, darling? It's a Mr. Death or something. He's come about the reaping. By degrees, the bracken thinned, affording a view of a field that extended as far as Cove Hythe Church. Yep. Which is this place, which is Amazing. a ruin. ruin. Amazing ruin. Beyond a low electric fence lay a herd of almost 100 head, head of swine. There they so are. At the back of the graveyard. On brown earth where meagre patches of chamomile grow. I climbed over the wire and approached one of the ponderous, immobile sleeping animals. As I bent towards it, it opened a small eye, fringed with light lashes, and gave me an inquiring look. I ran my hand across its dusty back, and it trembled at this unwanted touch. I stroke its snout, I stroke its snout and face, and chucked it in the hollow behind one ear, till at length it sighed like one enduring, endless suffering. <laughs> he goes there again! It started off being a nice thing about stroking a pig. Then he had to bring it down. This, well, this we're, is, we're right here. We're right here, and it's dusk. It's, it's quite creepy. It's dusk. It's quite creepy. With a really a big giant, old uh, flinty church ruin. It's very hammer horror. And a big old field of pigs ready for slaughter. Cove Hive down to the sea and you can see Southwall to the south and Ben Acre Broads just across that field the other way to the north and it's little sandy cliffs slowly eroding away down on a beach there yeah. pigs to be fiddled with There's pigs everywhere, it's pretty amazing I went to the edge of the cliff and saw that they had dug their nesting holes in the topmost layer of clay. A couple lay down there in the bottom of the pit. In the bottom of the pit. <laughs> I never clocked that, clocked that before. It's a beach. It's not in the bottom of the pit. It's so... God! In the bottom of the pit, as I thought. A man stretched full length over another body of which nothing was visible but the legs, spread and angled. In the startled moment when that image went through me, which lasted an eternity, it seemed as if the man's feet twitched like those of one just hanged. <laughs> They're just having a nice time on the beach! Come on! I see people. When do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. So, yes, it's a bit like an apocalypse movie, isn't it? It's amazing. We're at the edge of the sea. There are dead trees that have fallen into the sea. There's one that's just this, holding, this holding on, on and about to collapse into the, the sea. With clouds scudding behind it. It's in very, very, very... Atmos. And then over there is Ben Acre Broad, right? right which is a, like a lagoon with a strip of beach between the sea and the lagoon. Yeah. So it says, a quarter of an hour's walk south of Ben Acre Broad, where the beach narrows and a stretch of sheer coastline begins, a few dozen dead trees lie in a confused heap where they fell years ago from the Cove Hive cliffs. Right. That's this so trees they're here. They're still here. It's interesting, isn't it? 25 Bleached years later. Bleached by salt water, 
wind and sun, the broken, barkless wood looks like the bones of some extinct species greater even than the mammoths and dinosaurs that came to grief long since on this solitary strand. So this probably now is probably one of the spots where I would say, oh, people, you know, as, as opposed to Summerleyton or Lowestoft where we've been, I would say this is what people imagine Seabald's about, which is about... Well, we did see a man of a certain age clambering over the sty over there. Yeah. And we thought maybe he's a Sebaldian. And we the, also wonder whether the farmer is like... Fed up with people bothering his got, pigs. Got a gun out waiting for another Sebaldian to come along for us over and the, fondle his pigs. He's waiting for us over the brow. <laughs> I'm more worried about just being here when it gets really dark. It's fine, don't worry. But it has that feeling of... It's Decay. very well, yeah, but it's also incredibly hammer. It's really hammer out here. The trees without any leaves on them, silhouetted against the darkening sky. There are clouds moving across the horizon over there. Scudding, I think we call that. And there's four there's four weird shapes moving round the broad towards us. You genuinely looked. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, you got me. Okay. I actually thought that little wooden sign was somebody standing there. I did too. Slender man. I was a bit worried. <laughs> I'll admit it now. Right. Can we go home now, Dad? <laughs> Welcome to the And soon found myself outside the sailors' reading room, a charitable establishment housed in a small building above the promenade, which nowadays, save as being a dying breed, serves principally as a kind of maritime museum, where all manner of things connected with the sea and seafaring life are kept and collected. On the walls hang barometers and navigational instruments, figureheads and models of ships and glass cases and in bottles. You're a bit quiet there. You're being too respectful of this space. We're the only people here. It doesn't matter how loud we speak. It's a sacred space. <laughs> you were being very reverential there. I was going, why did you hear the clock? <laughs> it's all about levels, mate. What? It's all about levels. You were being a bit tales of the unexpected. Welcome to, <laughs> welcome to the South World Reading Room. But I have should... a tale to tell you. <laughs> no. Now he comes in here and he claims to find a book. Uh, turned out to be a photographic issue of the First World War, compiled and published in 1933 by the Daily Express. And he goes from there into uh, um, the story Oh my God. The, oh no, the Balkans. The Balkans. That wasn't planned. No one knows what shadowy memories haunt them to this day. In this connection, one might also add that one of the Heresgruppe A intelligence officers at that time was a young Viennese lawyer whose chief task was to draw up a memoranda relating to the necessary resettlements described as imperative for humanitarian reasons. In the post-war years, this officer, who at the very start of his career was so promising and so very competent in the technicalities of administration, occupied various high offices, among them that of the Secretary-General of the United Nations. And reportedly, it was in this last capacity that he spoke onto tape for the benefit of any extraterrestrials that may happen to share our universe, words of greeting that are now, together with other memorabilia of mankind, approaching the outer limits of our solar system aboard the space probe Voyager 2. <laughs> that is just 
absolutely mind-blowing the way he's the way he's done that yeah yeah, yeah. i mean kind of, i think it's pretty commonly known that it's Valtheim, isn't it kurt Valtheim. Kurt Valtheim is, that his words are on voyager 2 but it's the way he goes from finding a book of pictures in here and yeah. four pages later you're on the outer rooms of the solar system, system with with a <laughs> with former nazi <laughs> death camp administrator welcoming the aliens Welcome to our rest. solar what's, system what's the line? For the benefit of any terrestri- extraterrestrials that may happen to share our universe. He's very good, isn't He's he? He's very but, good. But also, so grim. <laughs> so gloomy. Is he trying to make the reader gloomy? What's, it, what's the effect he's, he's reaching for? Because you read that and you go, yeah, humanity is awful. Reality is terrible. Um, we don't speak about these awful events often enough. Yeah. We should recognise how terrible things have been every day of our lives. And then you close the book and you go, I can't live like that. <laughs> no, if you live like that, you end up like this. But what's worse, again, I feel like it's the, the choice. What's worse, speaking or not speaking? Articulating something or letting it remain silent and inarticulate? Well, I, I think for his personality, it's not even about speaking. What's worse, writing it or not writing it? Yeah. It's almost like he's writing it out If you of don't himself. record it, then yeah. it then it's becomes, you know, yeah. secret. You will come with me. No, we can't. We gotta get back to the babes. Ted, we can't. We're dead, dude. Foot sore and weary, as I was after my long walk from Lowestoft, I sat down on a bench on the green called Gun Hill and looked out on the tranquil sea from the depths of which the shadows were now rising. Everyone who had been out for an evening stroll was gone. I felt as if I were in a deserted theatre and I should not have been surprised if a curtain had suddenly risen before me and on the proscenium I had beheld, say, the 28th of May, 1672. That memorable day when the Dutch fleet appeared offshore from out of the drifting mists (laughs) with the bright morning light behind it and opened fire on the English ships in Seoul Bay. Now that's before he goes to the reading room. So the implication from that is that he's this is on the way from Lowestoft. Sort of, yeah. But we're south of the reading room. Yeah, I know, I know. So <laughs> he's done it again. He's done it again. We're on the wrong side. <laughs> You're on the wrong side. What I also like about that is that had suddenly risen before me on a proscenium and I beheld, say, the 28th of May, 1672. <laughs> a bit of a clunk, isn't like, it? Like, like when I would say I would, you know what this is the point when I look up the Battle of Soul Bay on Wikipedia so the Battle of Soul Bay is, the, is all there and I could read you out all that but he actually details a lot of it in the book and says it in a much more entertaining way than a Wikipedia page but boy is that so much of the book that there's so much of it that you, you go oh yeah I should look that up the less interesting version of the same story what his is? No, the Wikipedia page. Oh yes, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because he ends up with the Earl of Sandwich's bloated body floating up on the beach. I know that's really cool, and he's only recognisable by the buttons on his waistcoat yeah, or something. Yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a really good story. That is a classic example of him just sitting on a bench here, and then his brain taking him away from the experience of the lovely sea and yeah, the sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to this to whole, something awful. This storytelling thing, and then a bloated body on the beach. Yeah. It always ends yeah, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. It always ends that terrible yeah, yeah. place. Now, wouldn't it? It'd be really funny if Wikipedia pages did the same thing, but they always end. <laughs> <laughs> they always end up in a really on a downer. But imagine if Sibel was alive today and was editing Wikipedia pages. Do you know what? In '92, he had a perfect opportunity 
to uh, go and meet Ted Nelson and Tim Berners-Lee and say, I've got a good idea for how to use the web. <laughs> Maybe we should set up an, an account on Wikipedia and go in and edit these pages. Sibaldipedia. As if we were Sibald. No, 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 this is not how it happened. And set like a conversation as if he was still alive. Ghosts in the Machine. That's a good idea. We should do that. Art project. W.G. Sibald's um, Wikipedia. Wikipedia. I've always quite liked the image of me with a sickle and cape, dark and formidable. Unfortunately, I'm far more ordinary and commonplace. I'm going to have to turn my phone on now, so this may make a noise. Uh, I want to read you something from Twitter. So, the novelist Sandra Newman, who, uh, who you've read some of her yeah, stuff, I, like think, her I think she's genius. an absolute genius. Yeah, and she was taught by Sabelt. Okay. UEA. So she tells a story. This is a Twitter thread. This is a story about the most courteous act of hostility I've ever witnessed. It came from the author W.G. Sabelt. So I was taking a creative writing class at university with Sabelt, and he was a deeply decent man, but he did not suffer fools gladly. Okay. And on this day, we were considering the work of a woman in this class who wrote, as she told us, 100 pages a week. Oh. She was clearly vain about being so prolific, and naturally others in the class envied her because they struggled to write at all. But her work was mind-numbingly mediocre. It wasn't terrible, just oppressively, relentlessly mediocre. It was clear Sabelt found it hard to accept philosophically that such writing existed in the world. But he was a very polite man. I love it. So Sabelt started talk to talk about how it was interesting that some people are so prolific while others are not. <laughs> and he said that once he and his wife had rented an attic room to a man who was writing a novel. This man wrote all day. The man had a manual typewriter, so Sabelt and his wife would hear him clack, 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 all day and all night, typing overhead. He never stopped typing. And because this was England, it was always raining. The rain on the windows and the typing overhead. Sabalt spoke very slowly and deliberately and had a strong German accent. Yeah. You felt that rain, all lugubrious and heavy. Of course, Sabalt and his wife couldn't help imagining the reams of novel the man was producing. Clack, 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 all day and all night. Then, one day, they came home and the house was silent. They went upstairs and found that the man had hanged himself oh from a beam. I know I'm laughing. We've had that kind of weekend. 14. No one ever came to claim his effects, so they threw his novel away. What? Sabalt told this story directly to the prolific woman, as if it would interest her. She smiled through it, refusing to understand. Sabalt died later that year. The novel the prolific woman was working on was published, but to make the story still more gloomy, her novel didn't do very well. She published one more novel in 2005, after which I can find no further trace of her on Google. Very good. The bridge over the Blythe was built in 1875 for a narrow-gauge railway that linked Halesworth and Southwold. According to local historians, the train that ran on it had originally built for the Emperor of China. Okay, so we are now on the train line. We're on the train line running from 
down towards the Blythe. We've been over the bridge. Too windy to record too there. Too windy to record. Even, even we've had to admit that uh, uh, it was we, too windy. We, so the Southwold Railway was yeah. a remarkable... I'm reading this from the Southwold Railway site. Yes. Uh, was a remarkable three-foot narrow-gauge line linking the fashionable Suffolk seaside resort of Southwold with the Great Eastern Main Line at Halesworth. Opened in 1879 and closed in 1929. They ordered three trains for the line, and they were ordered from a, a Manchester firm called Sharp, Stewart & Company. Steam locomotive. Chinese-owned? No, not Chinese-owned. <laughs> not Chinese-owned in any way. They, they ordered three engines. It, it's fair to say the railway line wasn't a huge success, so they ended up sending one of them back. To China? No, not to China, to <laughs> Manchester. The only mention of China in reference to the Southwold Railway is in the rings of Saturn. You see, what's very good here <laughs> is that he says, precisely which emperor had given this commission, I have not succeeded in finding out. he says out. according to local historians, doesn't he? Despite lengthy research, he claims, lengthy research, nor have I been able to discover why the order was never delivered or why this diminutive imperial train, which may have been intended to connect the palace in Peking, ended up in service on a branch line of the Great Eastern Railway. And then he says, The only thing the uncertain sources agree on is that the outlines of the imperial heraldic dragon complete with a tail and somewhat clouded over by its own breath, could clearly be made out beneath the black paintwork of the carriages. Now, I've seen okay. pictures. There's, there's, there's not only pictures, but there's a video of the carriages. And you can't see any dragon? That's not. No. I've seen them, and they've got a slightly curved roof that you might say is slightly pagodery in the same way that he says about Orford Nest research facilities, that they okay. look a little bit Chinesey. Okay. <laughs> That's all he's saying, really. Okay. And then that allows him to go off on a massive riff about massive the riff terrible about the things the that happened in China. The Dowager Empress. To another story of mass murder and genocide yeah. and, and yeah, eccentric yeah, yeah. rich people doing weird, obsessive stuff. Just over 700 years ago, this very spot I'm standing on was about a mile inland. Not anymore. This stretch of Suffolk coast has eroded at a fantastic rate since medieval times. Fair enough, you might say, let nature take its course. But it's an archaeologist's nightmare, because right here, or should I say right there, once stood one of England's largest commercial centres and biggest harbours, the flourishing port of Dunwich. I was beginning to think of turning back when all of a sudden the heath opened out in front of me. Shading from pale lilac to deepest purple, it stretched away westward with a white track curving gently through its midst, lost in the thoughts that went round in my head incessantly and numbed by this crazed flowering. Yes. I stuck to the sandy path until my astonishment, not to say horror, I found myself back again at the same tangled thicket from which I had emerged about an hour before, or as it now seemed to me in some distant past. Only in retrospect did I realise that the only discernible landmark on this treeless heath, a most peculiar villa, with a glass-domed observation tower, which reminded me somehow of Ostend, had presented itself time and again from a quite different angle, now close to, now further off, now to my left and now to my right. So, we are on Dunwich Heath. Dunwich Heath. We can't find a villa, but the, the, the usual candidate, we just... Robert McFarland says it's, it's uh, size well B. Well, I, I said it was size well B, and then you thought, that's you were, rubbish. But you're not an academic at Cambridge. Right. Okay. So and then you say, and then you're saying, well, why does it call it a Belgian villa? He doesn't. He says it's a villa, and well, it reminds he... him of somehow of Ostend. Ah. And then later on, he says the Belgian, the spectral Belgian villa. They're yeah, right. So he's building up from. Okay. 
Yeah, so I'm, I think it is. I think that it's the only building here. You go up onto that heath, there's yeah. nothing there. Well, there's a Coast Guard's cottage, but that, yeah, that's but there's not, no dome. Not, yeah. There's, there's no, no dome. glass dome. The only glass dome is the Sizewell B dome. Well, there's some interesting th- points about that. First of all, they were building it when he came here. Yes. So what what did it look like when he was Well, that, so he's here time? in 92. It's It goes online in 95. Yeah. It start building in 87. So I imagine it was close to... It will have been built and they will have been doing testing. The whole book is full of threat and death and everything. And then what's just a, what's just an overused cliche for... Close to how close we are all to death, a nuclear power station, and he doesn't use it. No, but what you know, no, he does. See, you're wrong, he is using it because he, no, he says, I climbed to Dunwich Heath, which lies lawn above the sea, yeah. And the next thing he says about it, he talks about the de- burning of the forest. No, he says, The history of how that melancholy region came to be is closely connected not only with the nature of the soil and the influence of a maritime climate, but also far more decisively with the steady advancing destruction over a period of many centuries and indeed millennia of the dense forests. Then he goes on to talk about that what were the forests used for? Combustion. Power station. The first form of power station. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, we've got, we've, got, we've got his rhythm of his thought here. Yeah, yeah. He then goes, our spread over the earth was fuelled by reducing the highest species of vegetation to charcoal, by incessantly burning whatever would burn. Combustion is the hidden principle behind every artefact we create. And then, from the earliest times, human civilization has been no more than a strange luminescence, growing more intense by the hour, of which no one can say when it will begin to wane and when it will fade away. He's done it again. The thing here, Lloyd, what we already know about Max is yeah. he is a man who does his research. He doesn't go on this walk not knowing what he's going to find. Does he? I, I think so. I think he spent quite a lot of time in the library looking things up before he comes on his little walk. Don't you think? I think he spent a lot of time in the library after his little walk. Oh, well, we disagree then. Is what I think. I think he took a lot of notes we when, he disagree. Was, when he was walking around and then he went back and... I think he's got a load of stories and then he's thinking, where can I kick that one off? I think I, I genuinely think it started off as a walk. You know, what if, mm. what if he just walked out of the house one day and said, you know, I've, I've had enough. I'm walking, you know, it's got that kind of sense to it a couple of times, isn't it? This idea that well, I'm walking off the edge. I've read this book several times and it's only, it's only walking with you. Yeah. Where I've got that ter- you're feeling terrible sense of suicidal <laughs> desolation. <laughs> but it, no, but then what's his wife thinking? She's just said, oh, I've just, I'm just going out for a while. Yeah, but then Four fun, days later, he still from, hasn't called. Phones her from the pub and says, can you come and pick me can up? Can come and pick you up? Oh, you're alive then? That's a classic story though, isn't it? Middle-aged man walks out of the house, disappears for five days. Phones up from a pub, can you pick me up? Happens all the time. <laughs> that makes the story even more gloomy than I it know. already I was. It totally does. Gosh. The other thing we should say is this is now a National Trust installation. Yeah, we can get a nice cup of coffee he makes, here. He makes no mention of the National Trust, but he may not have seen it because it's on one corner. But it's, it's now literally impossible to get lost on the heath. <laughs> Death and taxes? Yes. Death and taxes? Yes. But not parent. It's just a saying, Mr. Black. Hmm. By whom? Doesn't matter. Then why'd you bring it up? <sighs> You're not familiar with the phrase in this world nothing is certain but death and taxes? Well, I am now. So this is um we're at Moat Farm. Moat Farm. You brought us out in the middle of nowhere, mate. It I'm really a bit is. scared. It, it's quite scary. And it's it's a rather sort of it's a really remote farmhouse. 
Oh, and it's a basically what we're talking about is the section about Thomas Abrams. Uh, Chestnut Tree Farm. Right. It was afternoon I by came... the time I came to the lane which leaves the Roman road from Yoxford to Boston yeah. across a cattle grid. There's a cattle grid. And leads through a meadow to Chestnut Tree Farm. That's the meadow. Thomas Abrams has been working on a model of the Temple of Jerusalem for a good 20 years. Yeah. Now in his early 60s, Thomas Abrams has been a farmer all his life. Yeah. He took to the model making soon after he left the village school and like many of his kind, he would spend the long winter evenings gluing little pieces of wood together yeah. to build all sorts of barks and sailing boats. So the model for Thomas Abrams is Alec Gerard. Yes. Or Garrard. Gerard, Gerard, G-A-R-R-A-R-D. I'd say Gerard. Gerard. Yeah. So I found a story about his death in 2010 in the Eastern Daily Press. Okay. An astonishing model of the biblical temple of Jerusalem was a labour of love for retired Waveney Valley farmer and Methodist lay preacher. Yeah, it does oh, okay. mention that. It does and mention it, that. It, Mr. Gerard, okay, started the project around 1980 at his then 50-acre moat farm. This is it. At Fressingfield. It covers nearly 10 square yards, it says, says Sibald, and to the minuteness and precision of the individual pieces, this process of completion is going so slowly that it is difficult to see any change from one year to the next, even though Thomas Abrams has almost given up farming, he told me, in order to be able to devote most of his time to the building of the temple. He had just a few animals left, he said, and that was more out of affection than any wish to profit from them. Thousands of visitors, including many school parties, have seen the model over the years, and it was displayed at the Halston Gallery for some time. With his death at the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital, right. the model exhibition has now been closed permanently at the family's request, which will make arrangements to find us a new home. Now, we, we, it seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth. Yeah. We went into the church in Fressingfield. Well, the, the lovely, lovely no, church. No, 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 not in Fressingfield. No, not in Needham. Ne in Needham. Needham. And the reason is, I'll tell you why we went. I took you there. I found another website called whatisfieldchurch.co.uk that has a section in it that says, from 2008, so two years two before he died, died, it says, Alec Garrard has spent the last 30 years constructing a model of Herod's temple built on the basis of information from the Bible. Mm. To visit the model of the temple, contact the following. Alec Garrard, Yeah, we're going to read that address out, then, are you? But it's on the internet. Do you want me to read out the mobile phone number no, as I well? No, I do not. <laughs> I'm editing this, so I'm going to go, what, what, what on that? But anyway, so someone's put this 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 uh, this guy's address on the internet. We don't know who it Saying is. Saying in 2008 you could still go and look at it. So Two we, years before he died. We went into the church in Needham. Yes, because it's got the same postcode. And, and we so were really house. lucky because... Lucky because the, the vicar was in there with, with the, the, one of the wardens. Well, the one member of the, the congregation. One member of the congregation. They were about to have a service, the two of them. Mm. They were lovely. Showed us around the church. Anyway, we asked them about this model of Herod. Never heard of it. She, yeah, she'd lived there all her life, clearly. She'd never heard of it. She'd never heard of it. And he, his house is like 50 yards down the road. Yeah. Unless they've all been groomed not to mention it. It's a conspiracy. Because the other thing that I... Maybe we're in Herod's model. Well, what he says in the book... As well as being in well, brain. Well, you know, he says Lord Rothschild offered him a lot of money for it. Do you think Lord Rothschild may have bought it anonymously and just removed it for his little private collection? That's interesting. He could quite understand, said Thomas Abrams, how easy it was to consider someone balmy who for so many years immersed himself deeper and deeper into a fantasy world. Who is he talking about Who here? could he possibly be talking could about, he possibly Max? Be referring to, Max? But there's another site here, the Craftsmanship Museum. They've got an article about him, right, and his giant model of Herod's Temple. We have recently received word that Mr. Garrod passed away May the 10th, 2010, 
and the model is no longer available for public viewing, at that time the family was making arrangements to find it a new home. For a time it was located in his daughter's bookshop. But now we have learned that according to his daughter, Mr Garrard's final wishes were that his temple model would no longer be available for viewing after he passed away and the family is honouring his wishes. I found a bookshop in Halston, but it's Sunday, it's shut. Yeah. And look, go in there, we could hunt it down. What I'm thinking is, wouldn't it be great if two chances with a podcast, after many years of Seabald studies, were the two people who found the temple? It's a bit. It's a really shit Suffolk version of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. But I, he does this thing again, though. He does this thing about here where he changes the voice such that the other person is speaking. Yeah, right? yeah. In the final analysis, our entire work is based on nothing but ideas, ideas which change over the years and which time and again cause one to tear down what one had thought to be finished and begin again from scratch. I would more than likely never have started building the temple if I had had any notion of how my work would get out of hand and of the demands it would make on me as it became ever more complex. Mm. After all, if the temple is to create the impression of being true to life, I have to make every one of the tiny coffers on the ceilings, every one of the hundreds of columns, and every single one of the many thousands of diminutive stone blocks by hand, and paint them as well. Now, as the edges of my field of vision are beginning to darken, I sometimes wonder if I will ever finish the temple and whether all I have done so far has not been a wretched waste of time. Oh, Max. <laughs> this is oh, we, 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 both, we, we, both, we both got to the point with this. When you read out something like that, your first response is to laugh, <laughs> which is terrible. It's terrible. But I wonder if whether that's actually the only way you can respond to this. Oh. Because he's so agonised over the process of... Everything writing, leads to the grave, creating, mate. Writing and just being. It finds it agonising. <sighs> well, I'm with, I'm with Alex's wife, Kathleen, who said uh, that Alex so quoted as saying his wife thinks he's mad yeah. and wishes she had married a normal person. <laughs> Alec doesn't let it bother him. <laughs> So we're standing on Shingle Street. God, blimey. Yeah, it's um, windy, windy, isn't it? That's why it's called Shingle Street. Oh, is that why it's called Shingle yeah, Street? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. And we're looking at a picture from the book, page 225 in the vintage edition, of a, a set of white houses on a... Oh, Whoa, it's quite windy, Tim. I'm not sure this is going to record well. I think we'll have to go behind the house or something. Okay. Yeah, you just get a bit of Atmos. That's what you're going to get. Whoa, we're going to go down to the sea at least. The light on the end there towards Felixstowe is amazing. Oh, that was windy out there, wasn't it? So we're in a phone box. We're in a phone box. Which, uh, here, look, it's a, hold on. Yeah, it works. A, public, a BT phone box that works. Furthest south point of the book. A godforsaken place. He calls it a godforsaken place. Does he call it that? What does he call it? He said, no, he says it's the most abandoned spot in the entire region, which now consists of just one wretched row of humble houses and cottages and where I've never encountered a single human being. Well, there's dog walkers. There's quite a few. And these, they're not wretched, these houses. Some of them are quite swanky seaside. So accommodation. Even the most abandoned spot in the entire... So he's talking about Bordsy. He's got a whole section about Bordsy yep. and how it was going to be converted into a German pleasure resort for the That's, Hohenzollern isn't family. Isn't that so weird as an idea? 
A spa centre by the grandiose name of German Ocean Mansions, designed for 200 guests, was built at the time. What? If one can believe the records and staff with personnel who were recruited from Germany, today there is no trace of it. If There's one, nothing like that here. If one can believe the records. If one, uh, again, I couldn't, I didn't find a lot of, that I could see was true of this. Bordsy, more than 8,000 acres on the north bank of the Devon. And the, the Kaiser had his, his cruiser at uh, Felixstowe at one point. And under under the patronage of their imperial majesties, the North Sea coast might become one great health resort for the upper classes, equipped with all the amenities of modern life. He envisaging an open air paradise extending from Felixstowe via Norderney to Silt, to keep the nations fit, or the foundation of a new North Sea civilization, if not indeed an Anglo-German global alliance symbolised by a state cathedral visible far and wide across the waves on the island of Heligoland. <laughs> and then, of course, of course, the downer. In reality, of course, history took a quite different turn. For whenever one is imagining a bright future, the next disaster is just around the corner. Although you had a good idea that we should have done the whole Sebaldian trip on Segway. I like that idea. On Segways, yes, because there are quite a lot of Segways in the story. I think it would be good, the Rings of Saturn Segway tour. Segway, yeah. <laughs> that so it could, it could be a little business for us. I think it could be. You, you hire it you, at Summer Leighton, yeah. there's a little Segway station. Yeah, yeah. And then you hire it for five days, yeah. and you segue your way around Suffolk. Yeah. And at the end of it, we kill you. <laughs> well, then you're standing on a mountain of death. Yeah.